this morning. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 5, as Grace read, and I have to tell you, it uh, ends on a pretty sour note, the the chapter itself. We're actually going to be continuing to uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, and look at the Lord's response to all of this, but I wanted us intentionally to to leave off on that note, to hear, again, it's it's a rather, uh, it's a rather shocking note um, that Moses strikes before the Lord. Again, what does he say? Why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? This morning, we're going to be, we're getting ready to discuss um, the events of the Exodus that are perhaps most familiar to many people if they know anything about the Exodus events at all. The plagues and the miracles and the passing through water and, well, the, the real drama of the book, you could say. This passage sets up for all of that, but it does so in a rather surprising way. It, it sets up in a way that, uh, well, everything seems to initially, at least, fall completely apart. Even the faith of the leader that is taking God's people through it. And today, we're, we're going to find, before we get into these events, just how crucial this passage is, because it indicates for us that what the Exodus is about is about is not just about humiliating their Egyptian enemies, and that needed to happen. Every Israelite was looking forward to the day, or longed for the day, when Pharaoh would finally be seen, um, and be uh, for his injustice would be seen by someone, seen by God, and taken seriously. And it's not just about humiliating the Egyptians, and in a very real sense, it's not just about getting Israel out of Egypt. Instead, you could say that the exodus, in many ways, is about getting Egypt out of Israel. What I mean is, is that it is, the exodus is producing a people that might actually belong to God in a real way. A people that actually knew and trusted God, who at this point they did not know very well at all and had a great deal to learn about. None of this can happen, none of this will happen without those things getting very bad, worse for Israel than they've ever been. With, it will not happen without them facing some real dis despair and great disappointment greater than they ever have. In fact, Moses, again, is going to experience his own bitter confusion. I mean, talk about a chip on your shoulder if you look at these verses, and we soon will. But before we get into it, I want to break up our passage into three major scenes today. We're actually going to be looking at the three major parts, allowing the narrative to unfold as we go. First, an external clash, chapter 5, verse 1 through 9. Chapter 2, an internal conflict, verses 10 through 23. And number 3, mercy in the midst. Are you ready? I hope your Bibles are open. Number one, an external clash. Let's consider this. Now, as we looked at last week, if you were with us, Moses has spent the last 40 years on the lamb, on the run from the government. Now, 80 years old at this point, returning to Egypt. We need to remind ourselves of how different things look like for him now. And not just because four decades have passed. I mean, how, think of your life if you are, again— over the age of 40, what did your lives look like four decades ago? How much has changed? For Moses, the last time he was in Egypt, he was a prince of Egypt, an heir of position and power. He was strategically placed and had access to privileges that we can only dream of. He was at the peak of his physical and educational life. He could not have been in a better position, in other words, to actually be the hero that God's people needed. Only all of this privilege, all of, these, all of this strength, all of these inner resources, it failed him. It completely fell apart. In fact, he, in stepping out, trying to rescue this people, only found himself sent out of Egypt, rejected by the very people he was trying to save. All of this failed him, and he managed, it only managed to get him a, de a death sentence and a one-way ticket out into the wilderness— which means that when God does call him to come back, this is not someone who is looking for a career change. When God interrupts him in the wilderness, this is not someone who is looking for a commission upon his life. Perhaps 
considering what it will look like someday to retire from leading these stinking sheep. Now he's called to go back to the place on earth he least desired to go, where he was reminded only of failure. It's no wonder God had to practically drag him there to get him there. But still, here he was. And surprisingly in all of this, is not just that Moses is there, but it's that it actually seems to go very well. As Matt so excellently preached last week, when he arrives with his people, with the message God has given him, which is surprising given the fact that he is uh, literally giving them words from a bush on fire, from God who, again, met with him in the wilderness, and they seem to not only believe that he has seen them, not only believe that he has met with them, but believe that he actually has plans to rescue, so much so that chapter 4 couldn't have ended on a better note. Verses, verse 31, if we've got that, we'll put it on the screen. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. It's surprising, again, not only to have Moses here, but to actually be a success for once. But then it all goes so horrible. Have you ever walked away from a conversation and you thought to yourself, ah, wow, I thought that was going to go a lot differently than it did. You ever had something that you, again, played out much differently in your imagination? You have to imagine what Moses and Aaron were thinking as they left Pharaoh's throne room. I mean, they knew it was going to be risky. After all, they're going up against the king of Egypt with a request, a rather bold request. Even though it's just a request to get a few weeks off out in the wilderness to observe a festival— in chapter 3, again, and in chapter 3, yeah, God had warned them that the king wouldn't listen, not at first, that they would indeed meet with some opposition. It does not seem that they anticipated anything like this, walking out with more problems than they walked in with. The roller coaster that was seem seemingly shooting straight up toward the exodus now took a rocket dive and bombed in the dirt. What's going on here? Why did everything turn out so poorly? At one level, we need to say that looking at the passage that passages we looked at the last two weeks, well, God said it would. He said it would come with opposition. It would come with Pharaoh's own refusal, at least at first. Again, you might say that it went so poorly because Pharaoh is hard-hearted. God promised that he would be. And we were seeing here that his heart is hardening as God promised. However, I think there is more to it than even that. I think we see here why Pharaoh is so hard-hearted. And I want us to consider, though, first, his public indifference before we see what is behind it. I want to begin with, again, his public indifference. Look at verse 2. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now, imagine you, uh, that I received a text message um, from a number I didn't recognize um, as I leave today that said, uh, Mom wants you to stop by the store and get a gallon of milk. Now, my my mom, is. Uh, she lives in Colorado. I no longer live at home, thankfully. I'm probably not going to be stopping by the store, am I? Instead, I'm going to respond, probably, uh, sorry, wrong number. And depending on the kind of day it is, I might not even respond at all. This is definitely not my mom they're talking about. In some ways, this is Pharaoh's response. I'm sorry, who did you say that needs you to go on a holiday? Never heard of him. Doesn't sound like one of my gods. Sorry, wrong number. Try again. It's not just, though, that Pharaoh is ignorant. It's not just that he lacks some information about Yahweh. It's different. It's deeper than that. It's not just that he doesn't know God. It's, I think we could say, that he doesn't really care to know God, does he? And why would he? As, as an Egyptian, he has powerful gods. Powerful gods that had made him powerful. After all, doesn't Moses and Aaron realize that standing before him was like standing before a god, at least in the Egyptians' imagination, and Pharaoh's own? 
Moses wants to see powerful gods and hear from powerful gods. Again, it's not this Yahweh. If this God exists, according to Pharaoh, it's not one of my gods. It's the only, only the God of the Hebrews, as you claim. And if it's the God of the Hebrews, then it's a God of slaves, which can't exactly shine brightly on this God. It means either that this God isn't powerful enough or simply doesn't care enough to free his own people. And who wants to mess around with a two-bit God like that? Go home, Moses. You could say that verse 2 should read, I do not know the Lord, and therefore I will not let Israel go. You can almost hear Moses' hesitancy in the next verse, in verse 3, as he asks again, timidly now this time. Not quite so much the boldness we see in verse 2, where he comes out, thus says the Lord. Yeah, um, I'm sorry, uh, I may have come on a little strong. Um, the Lord, that's the God of the Hebrews, and he met with us, and we're pretty terrified of what he's going to do if we don't come through on his word. If we, if we don't follow what he says, the plagues and sword that he promised. Would you please let us go? I mean, please, we're just talking a few weeks. Which is... When Moses awakens, an entirely different response, Pharaoh's anger. Not only did Pharaoh blatantly refuse their request, he got so angry with Moses and Aaron, he accused them of having too much time on their hands. Verse 4, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. It's very cold, isn't it? In fact, in his anger, he decided to increase that very burden so they might not think of ever asking for something like this ever again. Why anger? Is it that Pharaoh simply feels disrespected? Is he just annoyed like a parent who's been asked ten times for a snack? I... I I don't think so. I think there is instead something underneath this public indifference. And this really is why he was so hard-hearted. At least one of the reasons. And it is his hidden allegiance. Not just his public indifference, but his hidden allegiance. Psychologists will tell you that anger is a natural, almost automatic response when you or something you love is threatened. Something you feel that you cannot bear to lose. And the more we love something, the angrier we tend to get when it is threatened. I'll give you some examples. Why is it you get angry when someone wakes you up too early? Because you really love sleep if you're anything like me. Why is it you get angry when you go down to the gas station and see it's $6 a gallon? Because we really love our money. Why is it we get angry when someone criticizes us or makes fun of us because we love our reputation, perhaps a little too much, don't we? When Pharaoh gets angry here, we need to ask why. Why does he get so angry? In fact, the answer that we're going to find here is going to have profound significance on what happens next. What is it that Pharaoh loves specifically so much? What's underneath that anger that he loves so much that he's unwilling to lose? Quite simply, I think we have to say that what Pharaoh loves is himself. After all, for him, think of what a few weeks for the Hebrews would threaten as it causes the mighty engine of Egypt to grind to a halt. It threatens Pharaoh's position, his power, he allows slaves to tell him what to do. It threatens his perfectly maintained world upon which he sat at the very top. Pharaoh uses this phrase in verse 5. He says, the people of the land are now many. Well, yeah, no, duh. There's a lot of slaves. Is that what he's saying? Is this just stating a fact? It's scary, actually, where that phrase has led previous pharaohs to go. Thinking back to chapter 1 in Exodus, that phrase began some rather brutal sentences. The Hebrews are many, so let's enslave them. The Hebrews are many, so let's wipe out their infant boys. And now the Hebrews are many. Don't they know how much we need them for our own bottom line? 
He's voicing the same fears that led every pharaoh before him to authorize and enforce the Hebrews' subjugation. Fears that if they failed to, to keep these many people under their control, they would threaten all that the Egyptians had built for themselves, all that they depended upon, and all they needed to have if Egyptian might was going to continue. The only logical response in Pharaoh's mind, if he is not going to lose what he loves, is to do what the pharaohs have always done, to turn up the pain meter until it is all the slaves can think about anymore. Till they lose all thought and hope of freedom. To load up the burden, even if it might crush them under the weight. In Pharaoh's mind, the alternative, losing his power, his glory, his influence, the might and position of Egypt, even for a moment, would be so much worse. In other words, it's not just that Pharaoh did not know or care to know the Hebrews' God. It is that he already had a God that commanded his allegiance, and that God was himself. I think you can even see it in the wording of verse 10. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh. Compare that to verse 1 in chapter 5. How does it begin? Thus says the Lord. I think the wording and the picking of the wording is intentional. It's as if the Pharaoh is saying, thus says the Lord, I'll show you who says. You want to deal with a mighty God? I'll show you what Pharaoh will do. You want to see what a true God can pull off? Thus says Pharaoh. And here's why this all matters. When it comes to declaring Jesus as not just your Savior, but as the Lord of your life, as your boss, which every Christian must do, it is only a matter of time before that loyalty, declaring Jesus as your king, threatens someone. Before it threatens the plans, the goals, the desires of others, it's only a matter of time before it even threatens you. Why? Because without even realizing it, all of us already have some sort of God sitting on the throne of our hearts. You may not even consider yourself to be a religious person. But you do have something, all of us do, that we give ultimate allegiance to. Something that we spend money on, fight for, fight to protect. We spend time and emotion on, we care about, we obsess about, and we know we, by, we, we, uh, we build our lives seeking that it would not be threatened. It can't even be a, a good thing, too, that we make ultimate. Work, family, a sense of comfort and predictability, a particular goal you might have for your life, maybe a certain friendship or a romantic relationship, maybe a political alliance. And when we start picking fights with these self-made gods that already sit on the throne, Things get ugly. People get angry. After all, have you ever wondered why politics today, yes, we're going there, politics is not just a subject of great disagreement in our country, but of deep and profound anger. You want to get somebody really riled up? Start defending a political position that they don't agree with. Have you ever seen politics divide otherwise healthy relationships? I'm not going to ask you to show your hands, but again, how many of us have a relationship maybe with a family member or a friend that will never be the same because of where we stand on politics? Why? Because perhaps today, especially, our political allegiances become subjects of ultimate allegiance. We latch everything onto them. They become symbols of who we are, a vision of what the good life should be and how we'll get there, a picture of our hopes for the future, even our own identities, so that when someone picks a fight with my preferred candidate, it's like they're picking a fight with me. Friends, if you don't think this applies to you, again, when someone starts defending a political position you do not agree with, or you find out they voted for someone different than you, 
do you get angry? We are witnessing a war between competing gods. But we also see this at a much more personal level all the time. I remember specifically a couple that um, Grace and I were friends, are friends with, that chose to move into a poorer neighborhood with their children. A poorer neighborhood where they wanted to, again, live among and serve and love the actual members of the community that they love. Both of them come from wealthier homes. And when their parents heard about their decision, they didn't just disagree with them, they got angry. They fought against them. They could not understand why they would rob their grandchildren of better schools, of a safer community, of a bigger home to grow up in and thrive. The thing is, both this couple and their parents are Christians. What's going on here? Is it just differing opinions about how to raise children? No. I think there's a deeper conflict going on than that. Again, a war between competing gods. Upon what we've given ultimate allegiance to. Friends, let me ask those particularly who are those who are Christians here. Has your faith in Jesus, has taking God at his word, ever awakened conflict and tension in your life? I mean really profound tension. Now I'm not saying that Christians should go around picking fights with those around you. Christians, again, does, the Bible is not going to say we, we uh, again, any persecution that you experience is one you can pat yourself on the back for. Sometimes it just comes from being a jerk. The Bible's not saying, again, go and pick fights, but again, have you ever found that your faith in Jesus created tensions around you and often within you? As if the more you chose to listen to God's voice, the hotter the battle seemed to rage within you. The distance it created from even those you love. Every day, friends, we face choices and a multitude of choices which test our truest and deepest allegiance. A thousand tiny, almost imperceptible moments where we choose either to let God's voice win or someone else's. Often our own. And the thing is, when we start giving God's voice ultimate allegiance to actually start treating him as king, you're going to find that other self-made gods not only don't want to give up the throne, they may kick and scream and make your life much more difficult. So difficult, in fact, you might never think of messing with them again. As verse 9 says, let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. This leads, again, not just the, end, the external conflict, but now to an internal one. Thinking back to our passage, when Moses and Aaron leave Pharaoh's palace, how do they leave it? Not exactly bouncing on the heels of their feet, by all appearances, they've left worse and not better. And it does not take long for the shame that they have, again, brought upon themselves to lead to a shockwave that breaks the backs of their people. It leads first to increased difficulty. Increased difficulty. Immediately, the demand increases on the slaves. Not only will they be responsible to produce the same number of bricks, and again, notice what kind of labor they were, they were doing as, uh, what was their job? We're talking brutal, grinding, difficult, hot, uh, and, ne and, ever, and never relenting work. Again, how m if you've worked a blue-collar job out in the hot sun all day, imagine this is the norm for these people who never get a day off, simply to make bricks a pile that never ends. Imagine how dehumanizing all of this is. Not only that, again, it's the amount that they had was already dehum dehumanizingly severe. They would now have an additional task. 
They couldn't even rely on having the necessary ingredients to make those bricks. To make bricks, again, for Egypt, you had to have straw to hold the clay together. Well, now, Pharaoh says, well, I'll teach you a lesson. I'm not going to gather this straw for you. I'm not even going to gather, you, you, I'm not even going to allow you to gather good straw on your own. You must go out and find stubble. You must go search on the ground. Go out in the fields. I'm not even going to tell you where to go. Go and gather your own straw. I don't care how you do it, but the quota will not quit. You must show up every day with the same amount, collecting again from around the nations of Egypt, pressing them to the limits, I mean, not nations, the cities of Egypt. And when they could not bear the pressure, as we expect, again, it was already a significant burden. Again, they were beaten for it. It's again, uh, in case we read this too quickly, it's probably not just the period of a few days or a few weeks, but probably has gone on for months at this time. We have no idea how long, but it's long enough for the Hebrew foreman to complain about it to Pharaoh, only to be denied yet again. Their confusion over why Pharaoh would do something like this meets with an accusation. You are idle. You are idle. Go now and work. Seeing no end in sight, in verse 19, it says that they saw they were in trouble. <laughs> I think that's putting it lightly. After all, they saw what kind of cruelties Pharaoh was capable of. If they kept on going, unable to meet this quota, who knows what else his cruel imagination would come up with. Is it any wonder that this crushing difficulty then turns next to bitter disappointment? You can almost imagine them, these foremen, with a finger in the chest of Moses and Aaron as they come out of the meeting where Moses and Aaron are waiting just outside. And it says in verse 21, the Lord look on you and judge because you made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in a hand, in their hand, to kill us. The Lord look on you and judge. Notice the accusation. Again, finger in the chest of, of Aaron and Moses. You, you had to mess with him, didn't you? And not only that, you, you had to get our hopes up. And now look where we are. Worse off than we've ever been. You have made us even more disgusting in Pharaoh's eyes than we already were. It's humiliating, it's miserable, and it's your fault for Moses, how do you think all this feels? A failure once again. The Lord, as they say, the, the God you, you claim to speak for, he would never want this for us. How could he? You've been a pastor long enough to know that some of us have experienced emotions like this. Deep confusion and often bitter disappointment at the turns that life has taken. Wondering how a God who loves you could have ever let life turn out this way. And sometimes, because you chose to trust him, it has turned out this way. Sometimes, it can feel easier to expect disappointment than to allow your hopes to be dashed. To quote the recent Spider-Man movie, if you expect disappointment, then you can never really be disappointed. How many of us is that the mantra of our lives? <laughs> but the people aren't the only ones who experience, dis experience disappointment, are they? And this is perhaps getting to those verses we read to conclude our passage. Uh, we'll keep going, though, in chapter 6. This bitter confusion turns to agonizing doubt. Agonizing doubt. Look with me to verses 22 and 23 again. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Did you, do you expect a man like Moses, a, a man of God's own choosing, a prophet, to say something like this to God? Notice the venom in his words. To speak to God this way. God, are you kidding me? 
all those things that you promised to us out in the wilderness, all those things you said you would do for us, where is your love now that it matters? Things have gotten worse, and it's because you have chosen once again to do nothing. Why did you ever send me in the first place? And notice how he begins in verse 22. Moses doesn't just accuse God of sitting on his hands. He uses even uglier words than that. He accuses God of doing evil against the people. Now, at this point, we need to say that the Bible is actually very clear. God does not sin, nor does he, nor can he sin against us. Moses himself, actually. Now, we have to remember there's a distinction the character, and Moses, the author. Moses, the author, imagine this is weird for him. He's writing about himself in these events. But in Deuteronomy chapter 32, we find Moses himself gave us a strong assurance in Moses 32, verse 4. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness, and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Moses himself is saying, we can trust God. He will never sin. All of his ways are just and perfect. And so we need to say here, and perhaps Moses, even is, aware, Moses is aware of this as well, that he goes too far in his doubt, accusing God. Still, that doesn't actually mean that God's sovereignty, God's perfect control over the world and our lives, his awareness of everything that takes place, it's not to say that God's sovereignty doesn't raise some profound questions, especially when life is hard. Moses isn't wrong in assuming that God, whether you want to say he simply allowed these circumstances or not, is still sovereign. Moses isn't wrong to believe that God still maintains perfect, all-powerful all control over what has happened to him and his people. And throughout the Bible, God's people are not shy about voicing the genuine confusion this raises about their circumstances. You're going to see it the more you read the Bible. Genuine people of faith saying, God, I know that you're good and just, and that's why I'm confused. How are you good and just here in this circumstance? I don't see it. Would you show it to me? Imagine Moses isn't the only one who has ever asked questions like this, who has ever wondered to themselves, wouldn't my life be easier if God had just left me alone? Why did he ever send me? We're going to get to God's answer in a second, and it's incredibly important, but I still think one of the major reasons behind the people's disappointment and Moses's doubt here is that they didn't expect that following God would look like this even when God warns Moses that it would. They expected following God would only make their life easier, not more difficult. And they aren't the only ones. In fact, one of the places I see this play out most is in the lives of new believers. Um, those who become Christians almost uh, within the first few months of coming to faith in Jesus, as you would expect, their Christian faith if it is genuine faith, begins to reorder things, remodel the house of their life, begins to reorder their priorities, begins to create tension, even conflict. And that takes them completely by surprise. And many of my friends, again, after they become Christians, it's almost like they would, they would describe, it's almost like Jesus began picking fights that they weren't looking to pick. It can be as simple as friend who's trying to request work off on a Sunday and their employer doesn't want to give it to them, or asking a spouse if they can maybe start giving generously to a church or someone in need, or choosing to break up with someone they deeply love but isn't helping them to grow in their love for Jesus. It doesn't even need to be something overt. It can simply be the fact that they start, they just start watching the way they talk around others, avoiding cursing and gossip, maybe choose to cut back on their drinking. And as they begin to change, not everyone around them thinks it's for the better. 
their newfound faith in Jesus begins to stir up confusion and sometimes even irritation and opposition from those around them. Not everyone likes the changes. It can often be deeply discouraging for these new believers. It can even lead them, I've seen it, to consider giving the whole thing up, wishing their life could just go back to normal. I think in some ways, just to be honest, those of us who consider ourselves to be Christians can be to blame for this, actually. Why? I think sometimes because of how we preach the gospel. Sometimes we offer the gospel like a used car salesman, eager to get it off the lot, so eager to get someone to sign on the dotted line that the salesman plays up all the good things, the low mileage and the fresh paint job, but hides the hidden costs, the accident history and the transmission issues in the fine print and buries them. Out of a desire to see people, you see, to come to faith in Jesus, a desire I in no way want to diminish. And if anything, I hope the gospel intensifies that desire to, to, to uh, offer that good news to anyone who would hear it. Still, out of a desire to see people to uh, come to faith in Jesus, some of us have tried to gain decisions for Christ by any means possible, chasing an inner quota, playing maybe on someone's fickle emotions, playing on a fear of hellfire, and often burying the costs of discipleship in the fine print by any means necessary, just getting them to say yes, and then I can move on to the next one in line. Friends, I think that method of evangelism produces disciples who end up confused when life costs them in following Jesus. It's one of the things I find so compelling, actually, about Jesus is he does the opposite. He buries nothing in the fine print. After all, Jesus is the one who said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, do we have that verse? Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It might make us cringe to think of, taking, of, of talking about the gospel that honestly, as honestly as Jesus puts it. Calling people, yes, to immediately confess faith in Jesus, to not hesitate, to, to not delay, but to say that it will cost them their own lives. It may cause us to cringe to think of putting it that honestly, but anything else is actually dishonest and can be manipulative. After all, if you are not a believer, I just want to tell you, again, as I would plead with you to be reconciled to Christ, again, Jesus offers you life. You're not going to find it any other place. In following him as Lord, I, I'm inviting you to join me in a cosmic conflict, a war between gods, between the true God who is there and deserves our worship and love, and the self-made gods that consistently and constantly demand it and get angry when it's denied them. There is a war raging around us, not just in economies and political alliances, but in a thousand everyday decisions, a war for our basic allegiance. If you choose to follow Christ, you are entering war. Now, as Jesus says, it is in taking up that cost, in losing our lives, that actually we can find them to begin with, find them, find life and eternal joy. That's what he offers you. And I, again, would plead with you, if you are not a Christian, to take it. But make no mistake, the war that you are entering is a bloody one, and it comes with great cost. It's one of the gifts that God has given us, a community of those to pursue him with, to lean on, to have others to infuse us with courage, to pick us up when we fail and when we're discouraged and we wonder if it's worth it to have someone say, yes, he is. But it is a war that comes with great cost. And so one of the most important things I can tell you, if you are a Christian, is to ready yourself for the fight. And if you are not experiencing a real fight, real tensions, where it feels like you are ripping something out of your soul so that God can reign, if you're able to just add God as an, an accent to your life, like another app on your phone, you may not understand the gospel at all. It will mess with you. It will renovate the home. It'll bring you into a war. 
John Owen puts it this way, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Those are the only two alternatives. Again, I'm I'm not saying to expect disappointment. I'm instead, I I want you to ready for yourself, though, for the fact that trusting God is going to come with some confusion and disappointment. It will hurt. The timelines won't be what you expect. The fruit of it won't be either. It may give you more problems than you were looking for. It may make your life in many ways more difficult. People will not always agree with how you make decisions now. It may even make them angry. I'm not saying go look for the fights, but it will happen. We need to remember we are not doing God any favors in responding to his call, and he does not owe us a carefree life. I don't know how many times I've had to look at that or had somebody else look at me in the mirror and tell me that I've, I've expected God owed me. Even more importantly, though, we need to see and remember, number three, mercy in the midst. Chapter six, verses one through nine, which we've not yet looked at. And I find these words, these next words, to be incredibly fascinating, friends. And because so much of it is repeated from chapter three, I'm not going to go into deep detail about it. But actually, I think that's my point. That God repeats himself. I want us to notice in these verses that even as, first, Moses does go too far in accusing God, God never rebukes him. God proves himself to be patient with him. You could even say that he anticipates all of this doubt from Moses is going to boil over. And yet, God also doesn't back up and tell him why he has allowed all of this to take place. He never tells Moses, let me tell you what I'm doing here, why I allowed it to get worse. Instead, the only thing he says is that his promises and his purposes have not changed for a moment. He is still the God who has heard their groaning and chosen to act. He is still the God who promised to deliver them and will. He is the God who has remembered and will never forget his covenant. And all of this he bookends in one simple phrase, a phrase we see in verse 2 and verse 6 and verse 8 of chapter 6 and will show up all over the Bible, bookending God's promises and his commands. I am the Lord. In other words, what Moses and his people needed more than they needed to know what God was doing is who God is and always will be. In the midst of their bitter circumstances and confusion, they needed to hold on to something that is even more true and enduring. This is what they needed to hold on to, that God is the Lord. And his purposes have not changed. They have not been threatened or thrown off. And in many ways, the reason God is allowing all of this to take place is so that they would finally believe him. In fact, even as God doesn't give them the reasons for allowing the present turn of events, he is pulling back the curtain on some of the purposes that they cannot see. Purposes we're going to look at in the next coming weeks. I want you to notice verse 7 particularly. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. In other words, even though they cannot see it right now, right now, in the midst of their pain, he is preparing not just to humble the pride of their enemy, and he is going to do so, again, so much so that verse 1 in our passage tells us that the strong hand of Pharaoh himself will send them out. God is going to humble the pride of their enemy, but even more so, what God is doing is he is winning the faith of his broken and beat-down people, which as strange as it may seem, can only happen if everything falls apart. Even as they cannot see it, and as verse 9 tells us, will not believe it because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery, 
God is doing far more in the background for them and in them than they could ever imagine. And he is not, and this is very important, he is not waiting for them to agree with him before he does. It makes me think, again, uh, makes me think particularly of a scene from Jesus' life. One of my favorite scenes in Jesus' life and uh, with uh, Lazarus. I don't know if you're familiar with this story, but one of his closest friends who falls ill. And the news reaches Jesus, and it's fascinating. In John chapter 11, it tells us when Jesus heard the news, he stayed and did nothing. In fact, he allows his friend to die. And when he shows up, Lazarus' sisters, also close friends of Jesus, are not just confused, but there's just a tone of bitterness to them as well. Saying to Jesus, again, you can imagine almost a finger in his chest, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What is Jesus doing in the midst of all of this as he speaks with the sisters and allowing Lazarus's death? Again, these sisters don't assume that Jesus is anything less than sovereign. They assume that Jesus could have done something to prevent their current pain, and they're not shy about their confusion. And yet, in John chapter 11, we find that in allowing Lazarus' death, Jesus is doing something so much bigger. He is working a greater, a, a good that is so much greater than could have been achieved otherwise preparing the way, actually, for one of the greatest miracles in the Bible, Lazarus' own resurrection. And even more importantly, proving something about Jesus' own character and trustworthiness that the sisters needed to see and to know and to believe more than they needed their own brother's life to be saved. As Jesus puts it in John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. All of this becomes before Lazarus is raised. And Mary, as a humble and good follower of God, who knows her scripture, says, yes, I know the resurrection is coming someday. Yes, I, I believe you in theory. You're the resurrection and the life. And yet she believes in an entirely different way when her brother walks from the grave, doesn't he? Jesus knows that they would not believe it, not really, not unless they see, if they do not see a sign that he is the resurrection and the life firsthand. And they would not see a sign unless things completely fell apart and got really bad to begin with. Jesus knows, again, things will get worse even than that, though. In John chapter 11, it looks actually, Jesus, we have to say that he looks beyond even the death of Lazarus. We think of an even darker day when all hopes would be dashed and disappointed. When it seems God had not acted when we most needed him to. When Jesus himself, the Jewish Messiah, the Savior and Lord, would hang stripped and mocked and dying on a Roman cross. Offering a no less candid prayer than Moses did to, he to heaven. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, at that very moment, despite what everyone, including the disciples, including their enemies, the Jews and the Romans, thought was going on, God the Father, through God the Son, was accomplishing the very salvation of the world. On the darkest day of history, when all hopes seemed to be lost, dashed and disappointed, when it seemed that darkness would finally consume and never relent, God was accomplishing the salvation of the world. I say all this to say that in the midst of our pain and confusion, even when things get worse or go on longer than you thought God would ever let them go, this is why you can trust him. You have a greater reassurance than simply Moses has. Moses is given, trust me, Moses, my character has not changed, you're gonna see it. Friends, we have seen it. 
We have not just seen the exodus, we have seen a greater exodus. We have seen what God has worked on our behalf, why he always will be trusted, why he can be trusted with every conflict, with every disappointment, with every unanswered question and prayer offered to heaven, why we can say, God, you are good and will be seen to be so. Because look what he's already worked for us. This is actually what makes the end of our cosmic conflict certain. And so in the midst of your deepest despair and disappointment, when your trust in God seems to meet with disaster, you can still believe that God can be trusted because Jesus died and was raised. Because Jesus was died and was raised, God is accomplishing purposes you cannot see. God has not changed, and he is doing more than you and I can ask or imagine or believe. He is the resurrection and the life. Friends, I, have, I hope it's not risking too much, but I have to tell you, it's just so personal for me, this passage. This, I think especially recently, it feels like there are decisions I constantly bear, conversations I know I have to walk into, and I want to avoid strategies that I and the other pastors and pastors here must know we must pursue according to God's word. And, and yet all of these things seem to only come with increased difficulty and disappointment, largely my own. And I can often be filled with doubt, wanting just some reassurance that I can trust God while we're on the way. And perhaps you need that reassurance this morning. Again, the greatest reassurance we need, friends, and I have, is not just knowing how this Exodus story ends. It's not even just knowing how Lazarus' story ends, but it's knowing the gospel itself. Because Jesus has died and was raised, God has not changed, and neither will his promises. The good news that God is not waiting for us to agree with before he accomplishes. Father, we come to you as those who need to hope in that good news and, and are filled with so much doubt and disappointment today. I don't know, again, who is here that is facing it. It could be, I know some, again, because they have chosen faith in you, of feel only enduring loneliness. feel like, again, as much as they are fighting for hope that you never will come through, and, and Lord, again, knowing that I'm just so comforted from this passage, I just, I, I pray that today that they would, they would hold fast in faith even if it feels so weak. They would focus their eyes not on their circumstances, I say this even to myself, but on the risen Christ, to hear from God hear God say, I am the Lord. That is why we can trust you. Thank you that you're not waiting for us to agree before you accomplish your good purposes for us. But would we not stubbornly dig our heels into the sand or curse you along the way? Lord, would we show ourselves in the midst of difficulty and disappointment to be Christians? And as we engage this conflict, cosmic conflict, would we do so with mercy and hopefulness, compelling others to hope in this king to enter the fray with us that they might find their life. We pray all these things for Jesus' sake, our glorious Savior, the one who is faithful and we are not. It's in his name we pray.